It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. And I'm Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, Twitter's new troll filter. Can it clean up the internet and can it tame Trump? Plus, new business models for journalism. Could such a thing as an internet wallet finally be the secret to getting people to pay for quality content? And the New York Times is about to change their editing process. We'll talk about that and how editing is changing at news desks around Australia. Joining us in the studio from the UTS School of Journalism is Peter Frey. Hi, Hi. Peter. Hello. Uh, Thanks for having me. And on the line from Melbourne is the Australian's tech reporter, David Swan. Hello, David. Hey there. We're live tweeting and we can put your questions to the panel. Our Twitter handle is AU. All right, let's get into it. Twitter has long been criticised for how it handles trolls. On Tuesday, the company unveiled three new features to deal with the problem. Stopping the creation of new abusive accounts, bringing forward safer search results and collapsing potentially abusive or low quality tweets. David, it's not the first time that Twitter has announced a crackdown on abuse on the platform. Do you think these new measures will make a difference? Yeah, I've, I've lost count of times that they've actually tried something like this. And although this is a little bit different and I think does go a bit further than what they've tried in the past, um, it's definitely too early to call in terms of if this will have any material impact on, on Twitter's troll problem. Peter, Twitter has often defended their approach to the issue by saying that they stand for freedom of expression and the ability to show all sides of a story. So do you think these changes amounts to censorship? Yeah, look, it's a fine line there, but I, on balance, no. Look, I think, uh, just like David just said, I mean, Twitter has tried uh, this. Uh, I was in Twitter in New York uh, about a year ago, a year ago this week, in fact, talking to them about this very issue. Uh, they're very mindful the, of the trolls and, you know, they're very mindful of their uh, responsibility. I mean, kind of the central issue here, both for Twitter and Facebook, really, is whether they think of themselves as publishers, uh, media company, or as they prefer to say, they're a tech company. And, you know, so as a tech company, what are they doing? Well, they're enabling. And, uh, you know, you'd have to say if you were running Twitter right now, uh, for a company that was in a lot of trouble uh, the last year or so, uh, Donald Trump is is basically their business model now, and they're not going to do anything to shut him down. So he's kind of like the world's greatest troll in a way, right? Well, it'd be interesting to see uh, if some of his tweets broach, broach what their threshold is for quote-unquote abusive content and how it is that they mm. plan to monitor that kind of thing. Is it like a list of like blacklisted words that are going to trigger an algorithm? Yes, an algorithmic. I mean, there's two things going on there, isn't there? The, the one is they're going to say, hey, look, you you were banned from us because you once, you know, were a troll. Uh, we're we're going to think twice about letting you back on the platform. And the second is, a, yeah, an algorithmic uh, natural language processing kind of way of looking at the way, you know, a certain sentence with certain words in it. Uh-oh, troll alert. Uh, will this roll out, roll, roll out trolls? No, I don't think so. Um, will it do anything for Donald Trump? No, I don't think so. You know, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, as I say, I think, you know, Trump is the greatest thing that happened has ever happened to Twitter because he's announcing the policies of the supposed, you know, the most powerful man in the free world is announcing policies and opinions through uh, late night Twitter. I mean, does it get any better than that for them? I don't think so. It's interesting you say that, that Trump's the best thing to happen for Twitter. I wonder if Trump is using Twitter as his primary mouthpiece and he's no longer 
communicating with the public by way of media managers who will mince his words, who will polish his message. Is this a brave new world that we're entering into where um, politicians are actually real people? And should we be concerned about that or should we actually welcome this because we're seeing people for who they are? No, it's a great question. Uh, I'm certainly, I think we're seeing Trump for for what he is because what he's putting out there is unfiltered, right? I mean, we're getting it straight from the cerebral cortex uh, of of the president of the United States. I mean, as I was coming in, I was reading about his latest thing about criticizing the uh, chain store Nordstrom for dropping his daughter's fashion line. I mean, so here you have the US, the president of the United States criticizing (laughs) a, a, a chain store, a department store for, I mean, you've got to start wondering about abuse of, all sorts of abuse of power of the you know the um, uh, the official status of the U.S. president, but he also po- did call for a boycott of Starbucks for pledging to hire ten thousand refugees. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy yeah. stuff, right? It's a wild ride. I mean, who knows? You wake up every morning and you go, "Where the hell is this going to end up?" I mean, absolutely. I think he's uh, certainly a very colourful presence on Twitter, and he's not the only politician on Twitter that's um, speaking directly to their constituents. I wonder, do you think uh, that uh, this ability for politicians to to be out there directly on Twitter communicating with people has made people more politically astute, has made them more involved in politics? So, uh, again, great question. I, look, I think up to Trump... You could certainly mount the argument that Twitter essentially was a bunch of journos and politicians shouting at each other. That's certainly my experience. David, I'm, I'm sure you have a similar one, although jump in by any moment. I'm sure you guys also. So I think, you know, you, the, the often said criticism of Twitter is essentially an echo chamber of journo opinions and politicians' opinions. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, it's one of the channels that you could clearly use as a politician or as a journalist. And let, let's not, you know, get too down on Twitter. There's a lot of great stuff that you can do on Twitter. Uh, a lot of things that social media can do uh, to, f- to, in terms of verification, for instance, and getting stories, all sorts of stuff that it's, uh, that Twitter and other uh, platforms can do. Uh, but I really think sort of Trump is the breakout here because he's basically tweeting U.S. policy. <laughs> Which is not, you know, essentially Malcolm Turnbull tweets, but he's really doing it to back up either something he said in the parliament or something they've already released. Whereas Trump is actually, you know, it's mainlining. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting thing we're seeing as well when those two things butt up against each other. When you have Trump uh, announce something that hasn't been announced before and really kind of just uh, coming out with things off the top of his head. And then you have his official spokespeople having to come out maybe even the next day on more of a traditional platform like, say, CNN or in the newspaper and, and then actually change the context of what he's saying. So it's, it's, we're finding these two worlds now butting up very directly against one another and it's hard to tell what is the policy then? Is it what Trump just tweeted or is it what his spokesperson the next day interpreted those tweets as meaning? So, Peter, you said that you think Trump has been a great thing for Twitter, but you know, nevertheless, Twitter has 313 million monthly active users compared to Facebook's 1.86 billion. Um, and it seems like every, every few months we hear rumors circulating, uh, stock prices dropping, Twitter gets rid of hundreds of people. Do you do you think that we'll still be talking about Twitter in a year or in six months even? Well, you know, I, let's boil this down because I know we're going to talk about business models in a minute. And really, this argument boils down to the business model. So what is the business model behind Twitter? And Twitter really is still against, if you compare it with, say, Facebook and Google, uh, you know, they're still trying to find their business model. 
they're still trying to work out where the revenues come from uh, and how they make money out of that audience and how they sell into that audience. Uh, I think their greatest success in Twitter really has been in the sort of sports area where you know, they're really creating brands and they're selling you know, sponsored tweets and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but against the reach and power of uh, Facebook, yeah, of course, they're, they're, a, they're a modest thing. So will we be talking about Twitter in a few years' time? Oh, look, I suspect, you know, maybe uh, we'll certainly be talking about something like it, whether it's Twitter per se, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Twitter, Twitter is a perhaps a step along the way to something else. Uh, but we're, so I can certainly see Facebook being a much more sustainable business model. I'll put this question to both of you. Um, why is it, and you touched on this a moment ago, Peter, that um, Twitter, at least in Australia, is really a bit of an echo chamber for journalists. In America, however, it's much more robust. Is that simply because it was an American-born company and Americans are more inclined to state their opinion? Um, is it something about the character of a, a nation that uh, endears it to the platform? Why is it that it just hasn't taken off here more broadly beyond the sort of capital M media crowd in Australia? David? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd look at something like that and you can point to things like Fox News, for example, I couldn't imagine that existing in Australia in that same form. I just don't think it would work. And I think for the same reason, I just think our discourse is different here in Australia. And I, I think we're, we're not as prone to just jumping down people's throats with these short one-sentence opinions about things. I think I do think that our political discourse in particular is, is just more nuanced than that. And... Uh, it's, yeah, it's the way that we have our conversations is not, not that same kind of really brash way that Americans often seem to go about things. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd add to a few things there. I mean, one is uh, one thing that we have in this country that Americans don't really have, which is a massive public broadcaster. And I don't think we should underestimate the nature of uh, the public broadcaster. And I'm not you know, blaming or, crit- or praising the ABC here. I'm just saying there is a, a massive public broadcaster that fills the airwaves with a lot of content. And a lot of messages get out through there in a in more traditional way. So I think we see Twitter as more of an addition. I mean, the other thing about it is, let's face it, it's a matter of scale. You know, there's how many Americans? 280 million or whatever. 320? Yeah, right. Yeah. 320, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and how many there are of us? And, uh, you know, having spent time... You see, I don't think Twitter... Twitter, again, is in the US. Twitter gets amplified because it's, you know, people use it big time in on the east coast and you know new york washington they use it a lot on the west coast uh they don't use it a lot in the middle you know uh and that's kind of so i think there is a a, a matter of scale there and yeah also because it's in a u.s company and i think uh maybe the american character is more um predisposed to it i mean it's interesting i mean i've been using twitter for a long time uh, and I enjoy using it. I go in and out of it. I'm, I'm not, you know, a massive tweeter, but um, uh, I think with the way we use it is different here as well. I mean, I think the way journalists use it here is very different to uh, perhaps how it's used over there to some extent. I think that we, I think there's great potential in Twitter, by the way. All right. So last question mm. uh, to both of you. Do you think that Twitter would ever have the guts to stand up to Trump, police his tweets? Uh, you know, I mean, if if they're going down the gurgler, could this be their sort of final cry? Like, I mean, there's no way to, to, to make a new story than to stand up to the president, right? Well, that would be the last thing they did, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I jump in on that, David? I, I No, I don't think so. I think Trump is great news for Twitter. 
Um, I mean, who knows? Trump might suddenly fall out of love with Twitter and start doing something else, you know, start using another uh, way of getting his messages across. Um, I don't see what the motive is for Twitter to do that, essentially. And let's face it, Twitter is a business and a business that needs to make some serious dough and is getting outdone. A lot of the new products that have come out, uh, say, through Twitter the last uh, year, 18 months or so, things like Periscope, what have you, you know, have not been as successful as, say, the Facebook equivalent. Facebook Live is more successful than Periscope. Yeah. It's true. So they've got some serious issues. And the last thing they want to do, I think, is probably get on the um, one, the wrong side of the, the, you know, the, the single biggest traffic on their side. Yeah. I would think. Yeah, I, I disagree with Peter there, actually. I think that I think they should have done a long time ago. And I think more than the short-term impact it would have to remove Trump in terms of obviously the newsworthiness of that and then maybe bumping up Twitter in a short-term sense. I've just noticed that the amount of trolls that are following Trump and that jump in any time you even mention the word Trump created this really toxic environment and I think Twitter already was quite a toxic place, largely. And that's just only kind of gotten more so as Trump has, has dominated Twitter. And I think it would have to make the hard call in order to be a, a more sustainable company that people actually want to spend time on and visit. I know I have a lot of you know friends and family members and colleagues who just have no interest in Twitter because for a lot of them, and I know it's all about who you follow, but for a lot of them, it's just a place dominated by Trump and you can't really get away from it. So if they made the hard call of saying this isn't the type of behavior that we want in our platform, I think a lot of the trolls would leave with him. And that would kind of open up Twitter to the mainstream in a way that it, it really is not at the moment. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Livia and Marcus. Our guests this week are Peter Frey and David Swan. And yes, I'm sorry, we're still talking about Trump. <laughs> Fake news on Facebook appears to have influenced the U.S. election outcome. And since his election, as we've been discussing, President Trump has used Twitter to announce his actions and to give commentary on both domestic and international affairs. His preference for social media over traditional news media is clear. But he's not the only one. A study by the Pew Research Centre last year found that 62% of Australian adults get their news on social media. Writing in the Columbia Journalism Review, Emily Bell recently described the transfer of power from the press to social media. Bell says that the press has lost influence and impact over public opinion and policy, and that that power has been transferred to social media. But interestingly, social media has seemed unwilling to take it, as you said, Peter, that uh, both Facebook and Twitter are more inclined to describe themselves as tech companies than media companies. Uh, But nevertheless, Peter, I'll start with you. Do you agree with Emily Bell's characterization of a broken news industry that has lost all its power and influence to social media? I would say all its power and influence because let's let's just break down that. I mean, I, I think Emily makes some great points, and she always does. Um, the what she's really talking about uh, on one level is the revenue. So, the, in a sense, me, news media has generally has kind of made a, a Faustian pact, and that was we'll give you your uh, our content, and you will distribute it to lots more people. So we actually need you to distribute it. 
this is true of Facebook and Google, obviously. And, you know, was it 70% of re new digital revenue that came into, uh, into media companies, 70% of revenue generated by uh, news content last year in the U.S. actually was on Facebook and Google. So that leaves the media companies fighting over the 30%, right? So the, this is the, the other side of the pact, right? So we'll give you content. They'll give you an audience. Uh, but, hey, by the way, we'll take most of the money. And so that's where the power part has come. So, you know, you could argue in a lot of, you know, Facebook articles. Let's talk about Facebook articles for a second. A lot of most major publishers are using Facebook articles to get their content in the hands of, uh, you know, audiences. Uh, that's a great thing. That's extending the reach of their content. The flip side, of course, is they're not getting the dough for it. Uh, so at some point... Uh, something we'll have to give in this equation. And, you know, I think we will see this year, this is a prediction, but I think we will see, given the um, given what hap is happening in the U.S., which is essentially Trump is driving subscriptions higher in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Wash Post, all these sorts of quality ends of the market are actually getting in a subscription increase because of the Trump factor, because of this whole debate about false news. So therefore, subscriptions are going up. So people are showing a willingness to pay for news in the United States. And, and we'll, I know we're going to get to this in a minute, but you look at the, uh, the campaign The Guardian is doing to get you to become a member of The Guardian. I mean, will, in other words, will you, are you prepared to pay for news? And I, I would argue, again, going back to Trump, that he's the best thing that's ever happened to mainstream journalism because it's going to prove our worth if we do it well. So there's a great opportunity here. But at the same time, it is true that a lot of people get their news through Facebook and Google and and this whole fake news, how Facebook in particular uh, follows through on its promises to tackle fake news, I think that will have a great bearing on what happens next. So if they can really start uh, thinking about ways of uh, stopping fake news from being you know, in on the site as much, and they say they'll do that, and there's already been some progress on that, uh, then I think you know, it could be a great time. I don't know if that's going to solve the revenue issue. I just want to follow up that yeah. point on subscriptions, though, <coughs> because um, I think it's true, certainly in the U.S., uh, People um, seem more willing to pay for news. Uh, the New York Times has recently launched on a big campaign to to increase their subscriber base outside of the states. Yeah. Uh, but it's also <coughs> been well documented that Australians are just a really hard bunch to crack. They're really not willing to open up their wallet and pay for news. So maybe David... also the most willing to uh, pirate content as well. Well, yes, and you could yeah. say that the two are related. David, I think you could, yeah. why do you, why do you think this is? What's what's wrong with us? <laughs> Collectively, um, the news the news media, and for that matter, I guess your um, kind of content holders when it comes to video and music as well, just dropped the ball big time uh, 10, 15 years ago, and um, in different ways, the news media. Uh, launched all their publications online and said, here, is everything for free. And we're still seeing that today, even with some public publishers. You see Fairfax, you can read 30 articles for free per month before you have to pay. And it, that culture is now deeply embedded. You have people that are growing up now that have never paid for news and, and don't even know what it's like to pay for news. Once you've made that shift, I think it's really hard to shift back. Uh, so I think just collectively, that didn't really pay the the impact of what it would be to, to actually open all this stuff up for free. So I think if they could have their time again, I'm sure the publishers 10 or 15 years ago when they were setting up the online versions of their newspapers would have charged just the same for it as they would have the newspaper because it's the same content and it's of value. 
but instead they thought, oh, it's the internet, so it must be free. Um, and it's kind of too late now. It's just really hard to try to, to explain to somebody. We can on a one-on-one level explain to them that what you're getting is something worthwhile, but just collectively I think we still haven't got that culture of paying for news. Well, there are some companies out there who are trying to flip the subscription model on its head. Uh, one of them is Blendl. It's a startup company currently in beta mode. Another one of them is Inkle, an Australian version that's already been out there on the market for a couple of years. And they think that they've hit on a winning idea. They've partnered with some of the biggest names in publishing, including Time Magazine, The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, to offer app users content from multiple publishers in one place. That's not so radically different. That's not where it's turning a subscription model on its head. The difference is you only pay for what you think was good. If you don't like what you read, you can hit a button to get 25 cents back from your monthly subscription to spend on another article. Some people have likened this to the idea of an internet wallet. So you've got a you've got a bit of a cash purse and you give it to what you think is worth your time. So David, you talk about the subscription model being outmoded and we can't wrest people away from it and that being the paradox. Do you think that Blendl or Inkle in time can improve the quality of journalism? Or is it at best just going to give publishers a better idea of what sells based on who's asking for a refund on something? I'm really optimistic about things like this. And I've, I've kind of been talking about this model for a few years now, I guess. I'm not going to say I invented it, but definitely for a few years now I said, look, if they can come up with a really frictionless way of people paying where you're not even noticing, say, the money coming out of your wallet for each individual news story, it becomes a really easy thing for people to get on board with and something that will be similar to say, you know, just it, it just doesn't even enter your brain that you're then clicking on a story that you're paying for. If it's five, ten, twenty cents at a time, that's that's not something that you're going to even notice. That's um, right. I'm it's actually sure. an opt-out rather than opt-in payment. So you've already paid, but you can have the payment reimbursed if you don't like it. So it's assumed that you will like the content. Yeah. So it is I guess frictionless. That's, in the, the that's the question mark, I suppose, in terms of. I guess how that, that works with clickbait and things like if, if that would actually remove clickbait because if some, if some content's not of any worth, then I guess you'd have everyone wanting to get a refund. Yeah, well, Inkle works a little bit different than that insofar as it's not like an endless pit of content. There's actually a smorgasbord of the stuff that the publishers are given Inkle to sell that day. Yep. So they don't sell everything. You know, there's like three or four things from each publisher. So what's going on is a level curation as well as aggregation. I think the real issue uh, for Blendor and Inkle and other things like it is essentially volume, and it's the frictionless nature of it, and that is, can I be bothered? So, can I be bothered to select what I want to read? You know, that's kind of a big question. And the other question around it is, are the volumes there that generate sufficient cash? Because in a sense, the publishers are only going to do it if they get sufficient money out of it. And Inkle obviously needs to make money or Blendle needs to make money as well. I should say, as a declaration, uh, I know Inkle quite well. The people, uh, Gotham Mishra used to work at the uh, Fairfax when we, we were there together. And uh, UTS journalism students are going to get some form of uh, free subscription to Inkle uh, in this coming uh, autumn session. That's the plug for UTS. Uh, <laughs> All right, you're listening to Fourth Estate.
You're listening to Fourth Estate with Olivia and Marcus. Our guests are Peter Frey and David Swan. Liz Spade, the New York Times public editor this week, revealed that her paper's copy editing process is headed for an overhaul. She wrote, quote, Except for breaking news, most stories are reviewed by three editors, with up to six or more if the article is headed for the homepage. Soon this conveyor belt will be replaced by a bespoke editing system built primarily around digital. The specifics of how it will work haven't been finalised yet, but it is aimed at answering questions like, what's the maximum speed at which a story should travel from a reporter to the website? And what's the minimum number of editors who should see it? Right now, there are more editors in the New York Times newsroom than reporters, photographers and other journalists in the field. When a major report mapping the New York Times' future was released last month, it referred to, quote, low-value line editing and asserted that too much of what editors are doing is unnecessary. Peter, what were your thoughts when you read this? Uh, It all seemed very familiar to me, having been the person who um, was in part responsible for outsourcing the subbing of the City Morning Herald. Uh, I know a lot of sub-editors, and they will bristle at those words, and rightfully so. Uh, there's a, there, this, this, in a sense, this issue encapsulates kind of everything we've talked about so far on the show, in a sense, and it, it's this. Uh, digital first, what does that really mean? Uh, well, in, it means getting your stuff out onto the web as soon as possible, right? And, and in a frictionless way. And now if there is a premium to being out there first, there's also a premium, and the New York Times has always, always put a big store on this, to being absolutely right. Uh, and when they're wrong, they're to, to correct it. Uh, the level of editing at the New York Times is immense. It's, you know, it's it's incredible amount of editing. Uh, um, and I thought that also in that Liz Spade piece, she talks a little bit about this uh, phenomenon whereby, because it goes through so many hands, uh, the reporters go, you know, a lot of editors, line editors, think they have to make a change to justify their jobs. Uh, I thought the way she summarized it was very good at the end, which was that if no one notices, then it's been a great experiment. If everyone, if if the readers notice, then it's been a complete failure. So I, this is this is a tricky thing, you know. Uh, when for cost reasons, and this, this, the other part of this is that it's taking costs out of the editing of the New York Times. Uh, it's, so it's digital first and it's cost reduction. They go hand in hand as well. When that happened at the Herald, the real issue was whether the quality of the you know the copy. Reduced, and I think you know. On balance, the answer was yes, it did reduce. The question really is, and this is a question that's part of the dark arts of publishing, is to what extent are you prepared to put up with less quality copy against reducing costs in your workplace? So, you know, I actually think that the the cycles churned a little bit, and that there is now a premium on producing the best possible quality copy. David, we don't have too much longer for tonight's show, but perhaps you can tell us, as a practicing journo, what you think the magic number of editors is when you uh, yeah. file your work. It just sounded quite alien to me as a concept to have, you know, three to six people reading everything, uh, sorry, editing everything you do before it before it gets published. Um, I think just from my experience at, at The Australian, it seems to, to have it okay in terms of we, I have one or two people read everything before it goes up and, and edit it. You need at least one. Six, that does sound too much. It sounds like maybe a too many cooks kind of problem in terms of um, just maybe losing some of that, that raw voice that, that the stories often have. So I think one to two, um, it, it works for me at least, yeah. 
All right. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. Peter Frey, thank you so much for joining us. And Olivia, thank you for co-hosting with me. That's it for Fourth Estate this week. Catch us on the air next week, same time, same place.